recording? It is now. Yeah, I, I, I feel like at this stage we have a moral imperative for it to get real funny because literally I think everything else is on fire, including the Target. Yes, yes. I did like their message that they sent out like last night. Like, mm-hmm. we're not afraid to be in this community. Stuff's not going well right now. We're paying all of our employees. Stop being racist fucks. Which I think is everyone's message. Um, which I think at this stage is everyone's message. Uh, just stop being racist fucks and let this uh, burned out target be a symbol of resistance. And this will be all that we talk about this because as a black person, I am exhausted. Understandable. Understandable. I'm so tired. Well, then people keep coming to you and going, what should I do? What should I read? And having learned from talking to you for more than five minutes, um, do your damn research. Do your damn research, but also, like, just be human. Because, like, there's not... I mm, I can't teach anyone empathy. I can't teach... If you are so detached from reality that you need a book to teach you empathy, I can't help you. You are beyond help. <laughs> um, I think at this stage... I think what's exhausting to me is the performative nature of it all. Mm-hmm. Is that, like, if you aren't screaming in giant, bold letters, Black Lives Matter, that you're not doing enough. Um, and what's more exhausting is Black people yelling at Black people you're not doing enough. Because, like, not to be that person, but, like, Black people yelling at white people you're not doing enough. We've been doing that for hundreds of years, and we're not going to stop. So, <laughs> so like, I think we've earned that. But, like, Black people yelling at other Black people you're not doing enough. And it's like, we are tired. We're so tired. And some of us cope by not coping. (laughs) So you know how I coped today? I went to Whole Foods. I'm wearing a shirt that says all men are cremated equal. (laughs) And I'm going to be a content creator because there is nothing at this stage more radical to me than just being myself and continuing to move forward. That is the most radical protest that I think that I can do is continue to be myself in this world despite all odds. Uh, so I think it's the performative nature of it. That, like, it's just, it's so many black people screaming at black people. And like, if you aren't in these streets that you aren't angry, it's like, I didn't know that I had to yell that I'm anti-cop murder. I thought that that was just an understood. <laughs> I thought that we had an understanding <laughs> that this is not something that I support. Murder usually equals pretty bad on any scale. Yeah, typically. Typically. Um, but yeah, so that's the current events. We are not unaware, nor are we ignorant, but um, your resident black is tired. Which is uh, where we are. So uh, what, how, how are you? How's, how's your pandemic? Um, it's okay. Um, yeah. My neighbors are currently doing lawn maintenance. Lovely. Which sounds so anticlimactic, but it's incredibly loud. So I apologize if anyone can hear it. Um, they're getting ready to move, and it is basically the happiest day of my life. The second mm-hmm. that somebody actually puts a sold sign on that house. Mm-hmm. So, uh, although I've uh, I li- I've lived in enough neighborhoods and enough apartments to know that you never know who's moving in next door. So that's the thing is you never know who your neighbors could be. Um, so. What are we what are we reading? I mean, most people, if you follow us on social media, you know what we're reading. But what are we reading today? 
we are reading Harriet the Spy because we are looking for something still somewhat bright and happy, even though technically this book, when it was published, wasn't considered to be bright or happy. And is actually shockingly kind of sad and morose, like us. I actually really, really enjoyed this book because I felt like they didn't shy away from, like, actual 11-year-old experience. I can't remember what I was doing at 11. No, I'm lying. I can remember what I was doing at 11. It wasn't fun. No, I think 11 is kind of that gateway to everything is suck. And I'm going to have to deal with this as a teenager for several years. Um, Or forever. Yeah, my daughter's entering that phase right now. And it's very awkward because I get it. And so I'm like, yeah, no, you're a a hormone-like hurricane right now. I get it. Like, she's already got the get off my back kind of thing. And I'm like, all right, I respect you when I see that. And you're getting some privacy. But also we have a program on your phone and if a certain set of particular keywords pop up, I'm coming over to your room and talking to you. Right. So. Yeah. uh, At 11, I was writing a lot of bad poetry. I was a part of my dad's fundamentalist Christian church that didn't like science or Harry Potter or Pokemon. I was in a Christian school, which is different than a Catholic school. It's playing clarinet. And I think by that time, my father had taught me all of the major uh, Sicilian crime families. That seems pretty on par for you. (laughs) Yeah. So we would, like, regularly quiz each other on, like, the mafia and stuff. Because, you know, that's how you bond with your daughter. Tell me all the major heads of the Cosa Nostra. What? Yeah, like, that's, it's like, let's talk about the Gambino crime family. Okay. <laughs> like, that's, that sounds like normal bonding with child. So, Lori actually had a lovely suggestion uh, that we consume a Bloody Mary in honor of the tomato sandwiches. Uh, here's, here's a spoiler alert. I can't stand raw tomato. It makes me angry. Amanda's not a fan of the tomato. I delight in tomatoes. So I made a tomato sandwich before we started recording and I'm currently drinking a Bloody Mary out of our unfortunately required reading cup. Which is available at our Redbubble. Um, so yeah, fun fact, I don't really like tomatoes unless they're serving a purpose. Um, I like them in things and I think the Bloody Marys are just vodka and ketchup. Like I don't... <laughs> I'm There's not some a celery salt in there too. Vodka and ketchup. <laughs> um... So I'm drinking ginger ale because uh, before Tori hit record, I regaled her with the fact that I've had too much coffee and I feel like I can see color at this stage and I can taste it as well. I can see about as many colors as a mantis shrimp, which is about three times what a human can see. So I'm drinking plain ginger ale out of a crystal goblet because of course I am. Which you guys can't see is her phasing in and out of time. Right, because I am. Um, and I also have an herbed goat cheese that I got from Whole Foods, which I could have put sun-dried tomatoes on, which was the request of the cheesemonger at Whole Foods, but I didn't listen to them because I wasn't spending $6 on sun-dried tomatoes knowing I would not eat all of them. I refused. Stare at it? 
Yeah, I, I would eat like the three pieces necessary for the photo and then look at that bottle until it disintegrated. <laughs> Part of the grocery delivery I got Bloody Mary mix sent. So that was basically the excitement of how I made my cocktail. Pour it was, in a glass, add a lot of vodka. Yeah, I'm not here. Choices. I'm not here to judge you. It's it's too it's late and early and I'm fat and hungry. Which is something that I picked up from a drag queen. Oh. So true confession time. I had insomnia until about 4 a.m. last night. So yes, I was woken up by Amanda basically sending me a message going, "Hey, um, I even when I thought I was running late, I'm on time." And me going, "It's only 10 a.m." And then looking down and going, "No, it's it's freaking noon." So yeah, anyway. yeah. I was worried I was going to be late today. And uh, that is not the case. I was not late, which is incredibly Southern. Small window into my pandemic depression. Just kidding. That's my regular depression. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've also been fighting my insomnia recently. So, uh, hello, we're on the same boat. It's horrible. This boat it's a at very- this point in time, it's just in the middle of the ocean and it keeps turning in circles. So there's um there's a lot of preamble to this, but I will land this ship. Uh, there's a video by History Buffs who watches historical movies and usually shits on them because they're not historical. He's a great YouTube chan- channel, and I love him. And he did one on Apocalypto by Mel Gibson. Oh, I remember that. Which is awful. I didn't. <laughs> so, I don't think I watch, ever watched the whole thing. I think I just saw like bits and pieces, and I was like, "What is even happening right now?" Okay. Oh, this is going to take so much preamble, but it's worth it. Okay, so Apocalypto is about the Mayan collapse. But it ends with the main character getting to the coast and seeing the conquistadors, which is, like, hundreds of years off. Like, just, you can't, like, there's no physical way this could be happening. And as a historian, the host is just like, I give up. I can't. Like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. So he actually calls in the guy who does alternate history, which is another fun YouTube channel. And they're talking about this alternate world that, like, possibly Spain could have unified hundreds of years early. And maybe they sent Columbus early. And there's a little animatic of, like, a stick figure Columbus just adrift in an ocean. (laughs) And I feel like, I mean, sans Columbus being terrible, I feel like that's kind of, that feels about right, of just, like, sad, adrift, let's just, oh, God. Not Columbus, Cortez. It's one, it's one of the colonizers that was terrible and racist. Once you showed up and was like, these people are treating me like a god, I'm going to use this. Right. It was one of the colonizers that was awful. I no longer remember at this stage um, because history is full of terrible colonizers. But yeah, like that's kind of how I feel right now. It's just like alone in a boat. Well, not alone. I have Tori. We're in an insomnia boat in the middle of the ocean adrift. Mark and I have been yelling the uh, phrase from the road to El Dorado. The stars are not right for this tribute. Can't do it. Not today. Like a lot. (laughs) Can we talk about how aggressively horny that movie was? It might be like the best bisexual movie. Yes, 100%. You're like, like, I I love it. I fought your sister. That's a compliment. (laughs) Like, that is the horniest movie. And then you have Elton John. Oh, yeah. 
And then you have the thick native girl, which, I mean, is problematic, but she hot. And then there's, like, the armadillo that just keeps showing up that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I love it, so I'm not going to complain. We are not talking about the book. <laughs> what are we doing? Which is sad, because this isn't a book I ran from. This is a book I really like. All right. I think we're just that tired. <laughs> All right. Because I think we're just that tired that it's like, hey, you want to talk about a movie that we saw as children to give us a hint of serotonin? Okay, so I focused on the book. What did I do? <laughs> but it's very similar. There's just a couple changes, so that's fine. It feels um, very different. It feels different because the time periods are very different. At least that's that's what I take. Okay. So right off the bat, just something I want to give you a heads up on. Harriet Welsh does a lot of spying on her neighbors. And it's interesting because there's certain um, archetypes that just change over when you see the movie. Like, there's a huge section where she talks about this Italian family that runs a grocery store. Mm -hmm. And then in the movie, that transfers over to a Chinese family. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the dynamics are almost exactly the same. Yeah. Almost like a lot of the stuff is cyclical. So, but yeah, like I was actually, I was talking to someone on Twitter about this and I will talk about this more when we actually talk about the book, but I think if you've never seen the movie and you're going to the book first, the book is fine. If you're doing what I did where you saw the movie first and going to the book, I'm not going to say the book is bad it just feels very different because I think it is time period. Cause I did, I couldn't quite pin it down when I was going through it. And I'm like, this doesn't feel like the same work at all. So, and we'll, we'll get into this now cause we do short story long. Yay. But um, where the book is written, it's like late sixties, early seventies. Yes. Where the sh- movie is, is the nineties. Yes. So you go from Harriet's outfits that you're like, okay, that would totally be, you know, unique and exciting in the late sixties and seventies that she's dressing in this raincoat and as a spy and she looks probably more like a dude versus the nineties where it was like, we were all wearing How we all anyway. Look. Like uh-huh. we had moved from these stretchy fluorescent leggings into like jeans. And uh, yeah. All right. Short story long. Leaving you. Harriet M. Welsh is 11 years old and lives in a fancy neighborhood on the Upper East Side of New York. That ends up being important. Mm-hmm. Her nanny, Olgali, is her best friend. As Harriet wants to be a writer, she keeps a detailed notebook where she puts down her observations about everyone in the neighborhood so she doesn't forget anything. Unfortunately, these notes are usually pretty mean spirited. Mm-hmm. She focuses on the neighbor who's got like, 26 cats and is hiding from the health inspector the old lady who is incredibly wealthy and won't get out of her own bed so she like breaks into the house and rides the dumb waiter like mm-hmm. she focuses on the italian family in the movie it's the uh, the chinese family mm-hmm. and she's always like trying to figure out what is going on with everybody she has two best friends they're sport aka simon who wants to either play baseball or end up as a cpa He'd be great at the latter because he has to organize his dad's finances so they don't freaking starve. So dad's one mm-hmm. of those starving artist writer types because his Cough. mom left him, or like Simon's mom left. And You're I kind of don't blame her after the description of the dad. Anyway, Janie Gibbs is her other best friend. She's a future scientist or serial killer, kind of depending on if she gets poison right. Basically, she's always talking about how she's going to blow something up. And I mean, like, I feel like that was who I was in high school, but I digress. 
I was that in junior high and in high school. So these three friends absolutely owe Marion Hawthorne and Rachel Hennessy. Marion is the teacher's pet. She has basically been elected to the head of the class every single year since third grade. They're in mm -hmm. sixth grade now. Harriet mm -hmm. eats only tomato and mayo sandwiches and will only listen to Old Golly. When Old Golly and her beau take Harriet out to dinner and they come home late, Harriet's super absentee mom suddenly freaks out and tries to fire Old Golly, which was like so stupid because you're sitting there going, you're firing your nanny who's been there for 12 years because she was like 15 minutes late. Calm the right. F down, you were at a party. Um, Old Golly has just accepted a marriage proposal to her with her boyfriend, so she mm -hmm. honestly is like, well, it was time for me to leave anyway. So even as Harriet's parents try to backpedal and be like, no, 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 she's like, nah, peace out. Um, mm -hmm. Harriet is completely incensed with all of this and falls apart. Like, just the world is over. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of feels like the closest thing I can compare it to is how I kind of fell apart when my parents got divorced and you're just like, well, everything's ruined. I'm done. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> things get worse when Harriet loses her notebook with all her fun sayings during a gang of tag at school. Mm -hmm. And like the burn book in Mean Girls, everyone ends up reading it. Mm -hmm. Her best friend's feelings are hurt and the entire school turns against her in what they call the spy catcher club. Mm -hmm. They take her beloved sandwich. They send her mean notes around the class and then they intentionally spill ink all over Harriet ends up slapping Marion in retaliation, which leaves a huge ink stain across her face. In the movie, they used like paint instead, yeah. um, but it gives Harriet away as the culprit. Mm -hmm. And Harriet starts getting into some super shady stuff to get revenge while her mm -hmm. friends continue to reject her. So she spends so much time on her revenge plots in class, she's ignoring her schoolwork completely, mm -hmm. which gets her into a lot of trouble. She goes into a complete depression spell and it gets worse because the adults in her life have no idea what to do with her because she's highly intelligent. And mm -hmm. so they take away her notebook and her parents end up taking her to a therapist and the therapist is like, dude, she misses her freaking nanny and you stole her fucking notebook. She's too smart for your bullshit. So Olgali ends up coming back very briefly for a visit. She gives Harriet advice. You either have to apologize to your friends or you have to lie about the apology. Either way, you need to say you're sorry. Right. Which is interesting and problematic in itself, but we'll get into that later. Mm -hmm. um, inside the Spy Catcher Club, things are splintering because Marion keeps trying to make it a fucking country club. Um, a ton of the kids leave the club, and Harriet's parents talk to the headmistress of the school, and they have Harriet take over duties as the editor for the class newspaper. She uses it to write stories about the people she used to spy on, and everyone mm -hmm. loves it. She learns the value of words and that they can hurt, but also how to get out of shit if you don't want to do it. Woo! So this book was a huge departure from what people were used to in the 70s, from everything that I've read. I mean, and realistically, it was a pretty big departure in the 90s as well when the movie came out. Like, uh, mostly, I guess, because of, like, nostalgia cycles and media cycles. By the 90s, we'd kind of gone back around to an almost 50s, 60s kind of like more traditional gender roles. And I don't think we started getting like the quintessential 90s tomboy, probably to like mid, late 90s. Please yeah. tell me if I'm incorrect with that. That sounds about right. Cause I think 10 Things I Hate About You was late, late 90s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. I should know mm -hmm. this cause like one of my favorite movies. But mm -hmm. I mean, even that, um, 
cat in that movie is just portrayed as so different because she's read the feminine mystique and you know right she believes in you know women's rights and i'm like i mean you would think that would just be normal but right it was very different at that time period well and especially for children like i think i don't think we started getting like the rebel girl until around this time which i think the movie was 96 so my timeline is correct because like we didn't start seeing like the tomboy really in pop culture very much until like i think mid late 90s they existed and you had these little tomboy girls i mean i was one of them um but they weren't i don't know i have a weird theory about like especially like the way the 90s that a lot like a certain sect of parent just did not care about gender and i think that kind of gave so many people freedom to just not care and i think the we as a pop like pop culture i think yeah. takes a lot longer to catch up i think yeah. we always have these expressions in every culture and with every right. grouping but it's usually one of those things of oh that's not what we do as a group that's not right. You know, that's not normal and you shouldn't be this way. You should follow this, this, and this. Right, because, um, like, I mean, if, I, if I'm using myself as a litmus test, like, I grew up pretty upper middle class, went to private school, which I understand is very privileged for most African Americans. Um, and, like, in my group of friends in, like, elementary school, we were all, like, weirdly genderqueer kids. Like, I openly said that I wanted to be Tuxedo Mask and not Sailor Moon. Like... I always said that I wanted to be James and not Jesse in Pokemon. Like, these are all red flags in hindsight, or rainbow flags, I guess, as we approach Pride. Um, but, like, the, 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 these weren't things that, like, my parents were concerned about. Like, it wasn't like a, hey, we're going to put you in five extra dresses because you want to be this guy. Um, I just was thinking, five rainbow flags on the field. <laughs> five rainbow flags, field. You must vogue. Um, <laughs> you must vogue as penitence. But yeah, like, it's one of those weird things of, it was so secondary, and I don't think, like, because in hindsight, I guess I did dress like a tomboy, except for the embarrassing photos that you had to take at the mall, and then you had to be, like, extra performatively feminine, because you had to, because you were glamour shots, and you had no choice. Um, I never got to do glamour shots. My mom did it, and so we have, like, this picture of my mom that's, like, that super 90s, like, off-the-shoulder dress with the hair out to here and like the glitter like the we haven't gone completely slick into the late 90s we're still kind of right. hanging on to the 80s i mean she looks amazing but I, I always wanted to do like glamour shots so i have some of my uh i have some of my glamour shots from a kid and i am in a lime green uh newsboy cap that's pleather with a matching jacket because it's the 90s and they didn't think we'd end up in counterculture with that much pleather, right? Or that this was a fashion disaster, that I'd be hella gay afterwards. My favorite, my husband has a picture of himself in a shirt that he's got a freaking mullet because he grew up in Georgia, right? I'm so sorry. Um, and his shirt is this guy, it just says Radosaurus Rex on it, and he's holding a skateboard. He's got to be like seven. He's like a total baby in it. And every time, but he's got this look like, you know, they used to make you pose like you were super confident and you were coming for the ladies. Yeah. And so <laughs> the first time I saw it, I looked at him, I go, you trying to get some Radosaurus sex. And we laughed for like 35 minutes uncontrollably. And I think so I hate you. 
every once in a while we'll walk up to each other and be like, hey, you into some Radosaurus sex? And it's done. It's just I think done. I hate you. Do, I, did I tell you about my stuffed velociraptor? No. So when I was a kid, I had a, I had a stuffed velociraptor, which I think is the most Amanda statement that's ever been said. Like, other kids had, like, teddy bears and stuff. I had a velociraptor. <laughs> and when I was cleaning out my mother's storage, I found my velociraptor. My velociraptor is home. Aww. So, there are great photos of me just as a small 90s gremlin child with a stuffed velociraptor. And it's like, how did anyone not look at me back then? And, like, do you remember those horrible... uh? same color uh like capri pant and t-shirt combos that you oh yeah oh yeah so i so i would always mix mine up and it would piss my dad off because he'd want me to look like fucking veruca salt and all blue or something like that so i'd always like mix and match and be like green top blue pants because fuck the patriarchy i guess i don't know (laughs) um it's like how did no one look at me back then and be like this is going to be a queer well, you gotta understand, too. I mean, we didn't necessarily, well, we didn't embrace it ever. It was one of those, like, oh, no, that's the gay kid. I don't want, I don't want my son to play with no Barbies, which was ridiculous, but that's- Well, we didn't thing. have that in private school, because we had a little boy who wanted to play with the Barbies. And, I mean, it was I mean, private we, school. There's so. no issue with it, because you actually be, end up becoming, you know, better aware. Like, we want guys to be good parents, right? Sure. Right? So yes. what's wrong with them playing with the baby doll, right? We also want them to be sensitive and empathetic and to value other human beings, cough. And maybe not put knees on necks. Sorry, got political again. Um, <laughs> I'm so, so tired. <laughs> Understandable. Oh, side note. Should we post photos of us from the 90s? Are you comfortable with that? I don't know that I have. I think I have like one from the early 2000s. I'll have to ask my mom. Be like, hey, you have a bunch of pictures of me in, like, fluorescent colors. Make it happen. So, I have a bunch. So, okay, we'll dig up I have one from, God, what was it? Homecoming? Should probably block out everyone in spaces, though. But anyway. Yeah, let's, uh, you know <laughs> what? We'll, we'll, we'll give you guys some serotonin. Here's some, uh, here's some small hostess. Ho- hosts. So... One of the interesting things about this book is at the time, there were two, technically two different types of spy books. There was yes. the Harriet the Spy book, which was very different because yes. you had a character who wasn't necessarily gender conforming. Mm-hmm. You had somebody who, you know, their best friend wore a freaking apron and cleaned the house and did that kind of thing. It was your best friend was a boy, which was already like, whoa. And then you had Nancy Drew. Right. And Nancy Drew was perfect and smart and always wore like looked really good in a dress and she had, had no personality friends. she had her two friends her one who was very very girly and the one who was a little bit more masculine but still very definitely a girl don't you dare go there um right. and so you had this these two things you had <clears throat> nancy drew who was perfect mm-hmm. and then you had harriet who was younger mm-hmm. and a total mess <laughs> and the interesting thing with Fitzhugh's book is that this was the first time that girls who were like, I'm different, or boys who were like, I'm different, picked right. up the book and went, I see myself in that. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think we talked about this. Uh, Harry Potter 
of like finding finding or lack of finding yourself in male or female lead characters in novels because they're usually written terribly and if you are a person with a less than perfect um, home life then it might be very very difficult for you to relate to some of these male or female mains because they're perfect they're beautiful they're perfect they look like linda evangelista they're a model yes i just made a drag race reference and you can't stop me well, you're too far away for me to stop you anyway. <laughs> you're too far away. That's that's the beauty of recording <laughs> recording virtually. I get my way. Um, and you can't see how trashed my house is. <laughs> because I would just get back in my car. I don't have to be a good Southern hostess right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So I, I, I think we've mentioned this on the pod, but um, apparently Tori lives in slight fear that I am judging her household. Oh, 100%. 100%. I think Tori lives in slight fear that I am perpetually judging, which the answer is I'm not, because I understand that Tori has a lot going on and it's not my place. But unfortunately, I am Southern and there I always look like I'm judging you. You're like, it's, it's just my face. Yeah, like, it's just my face. I, I don't, I don't, all, I'm not always as judgmental as I appear. Now, if it's someone that I don't know, then I'm 100% as judgmental as you think. But I know you, so less judgy. And you Um, know that I have a 10-year-old who, like, somehow makes a hurricane happen around her feet, no matter where she goes. I don't even blame the 10-year-old. I mostly blame you and your crafts. My crafts are mostly located in one room now. The one room that I'm usually in. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Like, I don't usually blame the 10-year-old. <laughs> Whenever I see the 10-year-old, she's usually on the phone or on the computer. The 10-year-old's great. Or, um, apparently, I don't bring the right kind of cheese for the 10-year-old. Oh, my gosh. She's, she's so funny because she wants to be bougie, but then she's, like, very, very picky about her bouge. Like, I mean, you can, I mean, I'm, I'm that person. Like, there's a lot of, like, bougie things that I don't like. I think I kind of take the Anthony Bourdain approach with that, that bougie sometimes means just having the very, very best of simple things. Like if you're going to have a, if you're going to have a ham and cheese sandwich, like it's going to be really, really good fucking cheese. It's going to be really, really good fucking ham. It's going to be great fucking bread. Like you can be picky and bougie. Like being bougie doesn't mean that like you're sucking the eggs out of fresh salmon. That's not what bougie means. That means you're a bear in Alaska. (laughs) I'm picturing you now eating a ham and cheese sandwich in front of your St. Bourdain candle. Yes. Which came in, and there's a picture on the Instagram. <laughs> and it's in my bedroom next to, um, I have a little uh, light board. And you know how the basic white woman is a uh, live, laugh, love. I have die, hate, cry. <laughs> so, I like so the this- one that's like tacos, pizza, burgers. Yeah, so I have the St. Bourdain candle next to my Die, Hate, Cry letterbox, next to my incense, and my degree, and I have a uh, purple Hello Kitty Daruma. So, like, it's, it's, it's a very Amanda shelf. I was like, this sounds like a very unique altar. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the, best, it's the best possible altar in my pink murder nightmare room. Which Tori has seen in real life. So for those of you who don't know, Amanda has a very large sheet of, I want to say it's like pink satin or something like that. Silk. Kimono silk. silk. It's pinned over her window. Mm-hmm. And so it's just this like sea of 
pink that comes through, but it's kind of dark from where her ha- for where Amanda's house is located. And so you're yep. just kind of looking at it like that room looks like a like a Van Sant like murder room, like where you would yeah. find a body. Yeah, if a if Leatherface was a drag queen or like if Buffalo Bill was good at what he did, that would be sorry. <laughs> sorry. Did I sound too much like a serial killer? No, I laugh because I, I get dressed some mornings and I go, was she a great big fat person? And then I'm like, stop it. Stop it. Mark laughs at me, though, because I'm in Animal Crossing, of all things. I made the basement, the Buffalo Bill basement. And um, he, every time he like starts playing the game and he sees me in there, he just looks at me and goes, may I use your phone, please? <laughs> I want to be shocked by this, but I also, I, I physically can't be. You're 100% like, like, no, that's, that's just Chief, that's Chief Tory. But, um, oh, I learned that uh, the Texas Department of Justice has a, uh, like, a shocking amount of statistics on all of the uh, executions we've had. Really? Yeah, there's a website, and it has all the data. I found this by researching what may have been the saddest part of uh, American history, but ended in the most fun death jaunt, where they have a list of our executions, and uh, the fact that Texas leads an execution, because of course it does. Um, it has the youngest and the oldest executed, the county. Like, it's shockingly organized for a state that has a lot of death. I mean, we're kind of that kind of state where it's like, we're going to be really good at murder, but we're also going to be really good at organizing it. Yeah, like, I mean, if you have to be, if you have to murder that much, so it's literally, it's VR facts, so death row facts, which, why? Why, Texas? Why? Oh, thank you. Amanda just sent me the link so I could share it with y'all. So, um, do you want to talk about themes? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the big themes in this book is growing up from kid to adult, that switch over mm-hmm. that is painful and horrible and full of hormones. I, um, okay, this might just be the trauma, but... I feel like I never had that because I was just always a small adult. See, when you have trauma and you grow up with mental illness, that's a lot of the case. I saw myself a lot in Harriet and that may be yeah. the fact that Louise Fitzy was a lesbian and we'll go into that later. Um, How dare you spoil it for everyone? I mean, it wasn't really that big of a spoiler after a while. Like all of her friends, I love like, reading the information about her, her friends were like, oh yeah, she was totally a lesbian, but don't tell anyone. I don't want to get her in trouble. Um, so Harriet is going through, you know, she's losing her nanny. She's losing the last place that she has that she feels safe. She doesn't right. feel like her parents understand her. She doesn't think anyone at school understands her, which is right. pretty standard. I mean, like I said, I can, I can watch this happening from inside my own home right now. Right. Um, and I say that with love. So if you're ever listening to this little one, you know that I'm here for you and I 100% respect you and I understand exactly what you're going through. Yes. So. And if you are listening to this, uh, your strange aunt Amanda also mostly understands, but is just too tired. Understood. And Amanda will give you books and things and say, hey, you should read this. And you still keep those books when even when we do a mass murder to room. Yeah. So. Yep. Um. So a lot of a lot of it is the transition stage, and Harriet goes through the very rough portion. The yeah. difficulty is she's also highly intelligent, 
which is right. means that she's a little bit more aware mm-hmm. than the rest of her her colleagues. Although her colleagues, her their colleagues. children, their children, Although, Tori. <laughs> Simon gets it. I've, I've noticed if you, the the more I kind of went over it, um, sport. Mm-hmm. He gets it because his dad is such a fucking mess. He's had to become an adult overnight. Yeah. And I, not to cut you off, but like, I think that that was something that I really understood is that I feel like, I feel like trauma is almost like a weird, like beacon that like, we don't attract normies as friends. We attract other people with trauma because I know like, so here's a spot on the bingo card. When my dad died, it made it instantly more difficult for me to relate to anyone else. Fair. Because my dad died when I was 12. I instantly was, like, not like any of my peers. Because if anyone complained about their dad, I was willing to fight them. Because, you know, that's peak. Like, my dad's such a jerk. He won't let me go to the mall. Like, I would love for my father to still be alive. Which apparently is a downer. Um... (laughs) which apparently is a downer. Um, like, I, I feel like people with trauma attract people with trauma because it's so hard to talk to normies. And I feel like, too, you have a tendency to gravitate to people who are older and have had more experience. Yes. Which I think for Harriet, that's old golly. So mm-hmm. when the one person that she feels like she could be 100% unabashedly herself with is suddenly out of the picture... I mean, it's, it's like really traumatizing. She, old golly is the one person that she doesn't spy on, which is interesting. Right. She just talks to her. Right. She doesn't like ruin. She's in the middle of the date. She's in the middle of everything because old right. golly is very much like, you're part of this. You know, you're my charge. I love you. Here's this. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, she still spies on her parents. She sits right. there and tries to listen through the wall while she's taking her bath. And old golly right. is like, no, 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 no. Come on. We're not going to be shady. Get out of the tub. Right. But it's, it's fascinating that, um, the people or the person that she trusts is an older adult mm-hmm. who has seen some shit, mm-hmm. who is willing to listen to her mm-hmm. and doesn't address her like poorly. Like she'll correct her. She'll mm-hmm. send her through like, Oh, you're going to bounce or don't jump on the bed. Okay. So now you're just going to bounce your butt like in the movie. And she's like, well, it's great knowing you when you end up in space, like that kind of thing. Like right. very much the, you're going to continue to do what I'm going to, or what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you why that's a bad idea. And let right. me tell you the right way. And that's so powerful versus the teachers who are just like, no, we're done. No, we're done. And that's right. not a dig at any teacher. One, the teacher no. book is very fictional. And two, when you're working with like 35 kids in a class, you're done tired. Okay. <laughs> right. No. And I, and I, so, and even again, like looking at my personal life, I were okay. So here's here's something for the trauma bingo. Were you always like teacher's pet? Oh yeah. Um, I'm actually still friends with multiple teachers of mine on Facebook. At Same. Like, Same. Mrs. Freeman, thank you so much for the lunch meetings where I didn't feel like I could handle anything, and you were just right. like, which is funny because it's like hi Maria. Um, <laughs> we would literally sit there, and she would tell me about growing up in New York and growing up. Right. Like being a bartender and stuff like that and having to be like I know that you're not comfortable with who you are now but I promise that things are going to get better hold on realize that this isn't permanent it's going to be okay 
Yeah, I mean, shout out to Dr. Langston, who invited us into her home to make tortillas when I was in university. Like, yeah, so I think that's something that's interesting. So I think most basics would just call that, like, daddy issues or something, which it kind of is, because, like, you're seeking authority and you only uh, really relate to older people. But a lot of that is just, there's something that instantly uh, matures you about trauma that, yeah, like, I don't have a childhood. Like, I can't. Like, even the times when I was physically little, there was a lot of shit going on, and I had to be a small adult, because if I didn't, things wouldn't get done. So that meant that it was very, very hard for me to relate to other kids my age, because they weren't taking care of chronically ill parents, they weren't making sure bills got paid, they weren't having to worry about, you know, if mom and dad are going to survive the night because they refuse to take their medicine. Like, the average 10-year-old apparently doesn't have to do that. And that's something that's really interesting because this came up recently. Um, there was a therapist who was talking about this. The whole concept of kids take on all that emotional stress. They take on all yeah. that physical stress. If they feel yeah. that they have to step in and fix the situation, they um, do. the therapist was saying, you know, the struggle is these kids take on and they, they take on very adult concerns. Are the yes. bills going to get paid? Yeah. Um, why did my parents split up? Why is this happening? Right. That kind of thing where these are conversations that they shouldn't have to have yet. Right. But because there's that fear of there's that insecurity, yeah. they're reaching out to try and find anything to grasp a hold of it. How do I fix this? How do I put it back together? Right. So I, I'm sure y'all weren't expecting childhood trauma chat. Um. Um, I don't know. They've listened to a lot of episodes of us at this point in time. I think that's pretty this is true. <laughs> This is true. Uh, you want to talk about realizing that uh, others have lives different from your own, which is called empathy. Like, uh, that's the great thing about books is that you do get to, in a safe place, go through all of this stuff. Um, movies do the same thing, but uh, less good because you have a more fixed focal point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is always nice to almost voyeuristically look at other people's lives. And I think that's, that's something you see too, is um, a lot of times people who read more have a lot more empathy because you're used to seeing different perspectives from different sides, whether it's it depends on what you're reading. That's true. If you're reading, I don't want to disgrace anybody's book choices because I feel like I would. Here's the thing as, as an adult now I've reached the point where I'm like, I don't care if you read twilight, that's great for you. Does it get you to read anything else? Okay. Um, So that's like, that's the John green stand. So can I, so I had a therapy appointment last night and uh, we were talking about like finding worth and stuff like that. Me and my therapist and my therapist said, are there any people that you see in the world that you feel like are just inherently worthless? And I said, yes. And he's like, what? I'm like Nazis. Fair. And he was like, he's like, okay. I said, Nazis and clan members. He's like, all right, well. Okay. Touché. So. Not to go completely off the rails, but there's a book that's coming out later in the year called Ring Shout. And normally I don't yes. like to throw books out here because we have enough. But we're going to uh, throw a book out. It is written by a person of color. It is incredible. It's a mm-hmm. book set in the 1920s in Macon, Georgia, where there's just this group of like badass monster killers. And the Ku Klux Klan, what happens is uh, folks who are part of that group, mm-hmm. because of the hate, end up transforming into these demons so they basically have to kill these demons what's fascinating about it is birth of a nation the movie was just an enormous spell by dw griffith 
to transform people into demons and they were going to play it at stone mountain and it's like the creativity in this book the like cultural references the, just the right. stuff i mean it's so good it is i, I kind I of powered through it in like yeah. a day it was so good yeah i kind of love that but like so so i think so, so so what i'm getting at is i think if you're only reading things that confirm your worldview then no you're not learning a lot right. and i think a lot of people and i will not make this a race thing because black people do it too where we will only read things that confirm our worldview it is different than others but we will tend to be insular so if you are only reading things that keep you in an echo chamber then of course you're not learning about others I think it really does depend on what you're reading. So I know like for me, uh, being a naturally curious kid who wanted to escape the deldrum that was my daily life, I read a lot of things that weren't in my usual worldview. So I got to metaphorically and spiritually travel and see things and feel things that I didn't get to uh, because of the trauma and of the situation. So I, I don't think that inherently media is an empathy machine it's what you do with it because yeah like you can definitely ingest things that are only going to confirm your worldview right and i think that the hmm? same and i'm not picking on romance just so we're clear same thing as with sci-fi mystery regular fiction right if you're reading the same book over and over and over again and i don't mean the actual same book i mean the same type of book with the same themes and the same writing style over and over and over that's where it gets dangerous and that's one of the reasons i think we do this podcast too right is because and god i always feel like i'm whining about it the majority of what we read was straight white males yep straight white old males yep um that probably had some racist thinking that probably had some racist thinking and the the crazy thing too is like i remember sitting in class and reading a freaking dorothy parker story that was in the same like english textbook and going why didn't we do this one? Right. Why did we do the Fitzgerald and the Hemingway, but we didn't do this one? Right. And my teacher just being like, well, that's not part of the curriculum. And me being like, but it's right here. It could be part of the curriculum. You don't even have to buy a new book. You just it's have to right add here. it in. Make it a bonus thing. Like make it an extra, extra credit question. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice when you do have, works that make you live outside of your own life um and make you confront how you might feel about these scenarios so like if you were like me and as an adult you're like this is really problematic writing about a group of non-americans but it was the 60s so like no one had nice things to say about anyone really at that time and i think that's interesting too now that we we're kind of like you you pull out the glass shards a little bit from harriet's view of the italian mm-hmm. family or the chinese family in the mm-hmm. movie and you're going okay so what are her chief critiques one that she doesn't that she's just watching this kid be kind of a mess and try and figure out how he can be an american a typical american right while still being raised by a family that is like no 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 survival is the essence right um because survival has always had to be their essence right um and then you have you know, her observing the life of that, the, I want to say it's like Mr. Winston or something like that, the guy who has all the cats, mm-hmm. and his cats have all these very unique names, and mm-hmm. he's very loving towards them, and, you know, like, 
her observing him very differently than anyone else might observe him. You know, like mm-hmm. the health inspector is going, this guy has like 26 cats and he's going to like freaking die and get eaten in his apartment. And she's looking at it going, these are his kids. Like, mm-hmm. this, um, and then I think that the main thing that I really, really liked in this book was her realizing that sports life was so different from hers and realizing that maybe, and I mean, it, it takes her a while that that maybe she's got something different because he's, you know, trying to make sure that they have sandwiches and spaghetti and that the house is clean. And he's like wearing an apron and doing all these things and taking on these tasks that are traditionally considered to be female roles. Not that I agree with that, but, um, and doing all this just so he can survive and her being like, wait, that's not what I live with on a daily basis. I always have a tomato sandwich. I always right. have this. I have this bedtime. I've got this structure. You don't have right. that structure. And that kind of that, that realization that was dawning. And it initially starts as, I'm going to write something super sarcastic about it in my book. Mm-hmm. And becomes, yeah, I need to stop being a shitlord. I mean, I think, I think there's room to still be a shitlord. Because there's, I think here's my thing that I've learned with empathy. Is that the more you empathize, the more you learn there are some people you don't need to empathize with. I agree with that. I definitely this, agree with that. Yeah. There are certain this people also, that want to find everything that's wrong. They want to find just, everything that's wrong with you. Yeah. Or they, they don't want to know another perspective. They want to know their right. perspective. They're going to stick with it. They don't have time. Right. So, and you yeah. don't have time to waste on them. Exactly. Like, uh, I was talking to a friend about this and we were talking about like sometimes, cause sometimes every once in a while, despite me normally being a great communicator, there are some topics I have a very, very hard time like arguing for. Because, like, for me, they're not topics that are up for debate. So, like, I can't argue effectively, like, for equal rights or for gay marriage or for, like, women's health rights. I can't really argue for those because, like, that should just be a thing. It shouldn't be something that has to be argued. Like, it shouldn't, it should not be an arguable point. So it's kind of just, like, it's, like, divide by zero should just be thing. Because, like, I can very eloquently argue about other things, and it's what's shocking, and to make us political again, like, how that has changed. Like, if you had asked me, like, 10 years ago, when I was 20, like, about gun control, probably would have a very different and nuanced conversation. You ask me now, and I'm saying, let's be like Dr. Doofensmorts and have, like, a giant magnet and lift all the guns out of America and put them on an island somewhere. <laughs> Like, the conversation has shifted because time has passed. I kind of feel like Perry the Platypus would just assist in that, though. I don't think yes. he would destroy that one or cause the, yeah, the uh, gunnator to, like, malfunction. Yeah, I think he'd be okay with that. That's going to be my only Phineas and Ferb reference because, fun fact, I think the show is fine. I do not understand its fandom because I think... I love it very much. I have nothing negative to say about the show. But it's sort of like, I do not understand why everyone is so excited. I do not so think it is bad. Four days of summer vacation and school comes along just to end them. So and the annual problem of our generation. Okay, I, I have a kid. That's my only excuse. Um, you don't, okay. No, you don't get to use the kid as an excuse because I know you sans kid. Yeah, so I watched you started- without the kid. Let's yeah, I know. That. So we talked a little bit about swap gender roles. Um, so again, this makes a lot more sense in the 60s. In the 90s, uh, 
Because I grew up in a swap gender roles house. Like, my dad was the one that was home and picking me up from school and usually cooking and air quotes cleaning. And it was my mom who had the nine to five breadwinner job. So the ni- by the 90s, that window had already started to shift. By the 60s, I imagine that was much more uh, radical. But it- it's curious because we're starting to see that still that there's this hesitation and concern about, well, with women leaving the house, how are they going to get married and stuff like that? It's like, what? Like, well, guess what? That's a concern has only ever really been the purview of the upper middle class and the wealthy. Because guess what? If you're impoverished or you're by yourself, somebody's going to have to work to make sure that there's money and food coming in. Like, right. Like that's, it's, it's never, that, that's such a view of luxury that is fascinating. But, um, oh, that show, Mrs. America. I, don't know I was getting ready to say that. that. Yeah, sorry. Like where she's like, well, I've never been, you know, inconvenienced by this. I've never experienced that. And you're going, yeah, but that lady on the corner that's protesting right, right now has three jobs and four kids. So right, like, you are, you're a wealthy white woman and you have no problems. So be quiet. <laughs> uh, I will say Kate Blanchett though is incredible in that. She's so good. And like, yeah. you want to hate her and you can't, and then you kind of hate her anyway. Has Kate Blanchett had a bad role? Um, yes. Indiana Jones, Crystal Skull, worst, worst, worst Russian accent I've ever heard in my life. Oh, I just don't acknowledge that movie, so. Oh, okay. My husband gets mad at me because I, like, I harp on it, and he's like, it wasn't a bad movie. I go, he got in a fucking fridge at an atomic test site. It is a bad movie. Like. Your husband and I are going to fight. Yeah, it's an awful uh, movie. I don't acknowledge it. No, we laugh all the time because he actually got me to like the Fast and the Furious movies, which I didn't think would ever be possible. You like Guy Fieri, so I'm not shocked. Yeah, well, I don't. It's one of those things that's like, I don't think I'd be best friends with Guy Fieri, but I, at the same time, I'm like, you know what? I don't think I would ever be mad at you. You do so much for the community. But he's also secretly homophobic. That bothers me. A lot. That bothers me a lot. Actually, so much so that I stopped watching his shows. I'm sorry. I keep reaching over because Nemo is here and he's like, I need the scratch. And you um, haven't shown me the elusive Nemo? Nemo, I gotta show you on camera, friend. Is he not the cutest baby? He okay. is the cutest baby. Sorry, Our we had to, like, what the hell is wrong? Sorry, we had to do a cat interlude. I apologize. Talk about gender roles. Uh, yeah, they're swapped. It's important for the 60s and the 90s. No one gives a fuck with your life. Yes. Um, <laughs> I like that you put a point here, too. Girls using reason and deductive skills. Yeah, apparently that's the thing that is uh, difficult to do with ovaries, I guess. Um, I think one of the things that was most radical about this is I feel like it would have been so much easier to have this novel be from a boy's perspective. 100%. Um, 100%. This would have been like a slam dunk from a boy's perspective. Right. No publisher would have questioned it. It would have just been like, oh, it's an adventure story. Right. Like it would have been like a Hardy Boys thing or something like that. But like, because even when you mentioned like Nancy Drew, like I don't remember Nancy Drew using any deductive skills. I feel like like just answers fell into her lap. Yeah, um, it was like, I found this clock. I found this. Oh, that guy looks like he might be doing something shady. Right, and, like, the guy's wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm the murderer. Like, <laughs> No, keep in mind, I love Nancy Drew. I powered through, like, every one of those books when I was in, like, seventh I grade didn't like math Nancy class. So. When you weren't learning math. Uh, okay, sorry. It was actually science class. 
when you weren't learning got, science. I would have gotten in trouble in math. You know, I understood what was going on in science. But um, I, I think it's fascinating. And again, like in the 90s, that didn't sound so crazy because there was, okay, privilege check. So you know how there's this whole thing with like girls in STEM and like we need to encourage. I faced that a little bit during like one like summer camp thing that I went to. But like for the most part, again, because and I'm acknowledging privilege, I had that weird like gummy monster set. I had the Harry Potter potions thing. I had a spy kit. I had multiple spy kits. Like my parents never discouraged me from that. I have a copy of the 1995 physician's desk reference that like my parents gave to me and that I read religiously because if you need something that sounds peak Amanda, it's a child reading the physician's desk reference. That's, that's pretty much spot on. So like I was never at home discouraged from this kind of stuff. And if anything, especially, so my dad was the kind of guy that I feel like movies are now made of, of like, I don't really know what his job was ever money would appear and disappear. If I tell you his life story, it sounds shockingly weird, including the time he almost lost his leg due to a brown recluse bite. Wow. Yeah, my dad had a huge scar on his leg because he was bitten by a brown recluse spider, and like any black man, ignored it until there was already necrotizing fasciitis. <laughs> Holy crap. So he still had his leg. He had this huge scar on the back of his leg. And he's like, oh yeah, a brown recluse bit me. And it's like, what and are you you're, doing? You're not dead, sir. That's... And you're not dead. Yeah, like he went to his normal dermatologist. Like, yeah, I got the spider bite and his legs like exposed and open. It's like, uh, sir, please. <laughs> uh, but like, dad encouraged me to be smart and charming and wily and to figure things out. Um, I realize in hindsight that I am like a manic pixie dream girl in a lot of ways. But like, I guess if I was famous or white enough to be interesting, um, that was that was too direct that like I would be like a kid's pro tag because yeah like there's photos of me on top of the refrigerator as a kid like getting boxes of cereal <laughs> just like climbing up there there was a time I did that at home and I was, I was a small child and my grandfather turns on the light and I'm just like on top of the fridge eating cereal and he's like how'd you get up there and I'm just like shrug and he's like okay you figured it out like, you'll get down you're like I climbed up here Right. However, Eric Von Donegan will say that I was placed here by aliens. Right. Um, like, there's all these, like, weird precocious things that I did as a kid that, like, in hindsight, I don't think are weird or precocious. But um, I love that Harriet being a spy is such a big deal because, like, that's not, like, a woman thing. But, like, it was. There are so many, like, female espionage things. And, like, I love that they go out of their way to say that she's reading, like, Matahari and stuff like that. Like, I love that they go out of their way to do that. Uh, but, like, the idea that women can't or shouldn't be in this role, to me, is so weird in that, yeah, like, I guess for a kid's book, it would have been, air quotes, easier to make this a male character, but I think it resonates more with Harriet being female, but still having that, like, clinical, almost sociopathy of a male, because typically female spies are, like, the honeypot or the femme fatale or something like that so it is nice for her to basically be like a proto sherlock like bbc sherlock not on i know author um arthur conan doyle came first i'm not that dumb um 
the like a proto BBC Sherlock between like an awkward person who's too smart for their own good and really does not belong in human society. One of the things that I really like about this book, and I kind of tacked this on at the end of our theme, tack it on. Um, it's we very unique to see Harriet in therapy, especially for this time period. Yes. Um, because I remember, and I mean, even now we're, we're starting to move away into the therapy is good. You should do therapy. This is not something that's like witchcraft. You're going to be fine. And Unless I'm not it's better help. Yes, better. Okay. I, I need to be careful just in case we ever get a future sponsor, but um, I have an issue with two of the major online therapy um, options. I also having, have issues. Having used them and having them turn out to be much less than they were advertised. Yes. Um, I will say that maybe it's just because we get matched up with Texas therapists. I can't talk shit because I've never seen a therapist out here. I, so, so my therapist, I use my telemedicine app and my therapist is in Texas. And actually, so my psychiatrist and my psychologist are both in Texas. Um, I've really only noticed the psychologist having like slight Texas bias but she's a psychologist, so it doesn't matter. She's just here to prescribe me pills so I don't jump off of a bridge. <laughs> it's like, here are your anti-bridge pills. Stay away from those bridges. I feel like we just need to make a case now, like a pill case that just says anti-bridge pills. Did you see the sad bitch button in my store? Not yet, no. So, okay, so I need to tell you the story of the sad bitch button before we go back to talking about therapy. So I started teletherapy, and uh, my... Uh, my therapist was like, hey, I need to confirm your address. And I'm like, why? It's like, oh, because if you say anything that I think is concerning, I can have 911 sent to your location. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, like if you say anything that I'm worried about, I can have 911 sent directly to you. So <laughs> I started talking about it and I was like, I just imagine it being like this like ejector button, but it says sad bitch button and you press the sad bitch button and the popo shows up. so like i'm all and it's i mean this is gonna sound terrible but like when i'm with my therapist i feel like i have to almost like double consciousness speak because i joke a lot about like jumping off of a bridge or like flinging myself into traffic like if you know me i joke about that stuff a lot you can't say that to someone who has a sad bitch button and can have the popo come to your house <laughs> it's like even you and i joke i'm like well i've reached the point where Instead of going to work, I just want to run my car into a tree. And you're like, um, that's a, that's a sign, friends. Right. <laughs> like, we know each other. To ask, is this a sign or are you doing a meme? Uh, but that's the sad bitch button. It's in my shop. Shameless plug. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll link it because now I want a sad bitch button. Um, but yeah, like, it was, it was weird. It's weird that this is a girl in therapy. I did make a question. I feel like there are a lot of female characters that go to therapy, but it's always bad. Yes, it, for the, this is the first, like, positive experience I've seen. And even okay. Harriet is very un, unenthused in the beginning, which I think is funny. She's like, this guy wants me to play with toys. He wants to play with me. What the hell? Doesn't he, like, he can't afford his own toys. Like, stupid stuff. But Ooh. then, like, realizing later that he, 
he's playing this game with her because he wants her to open up and tell him things and like right. be part of it. And right. he knows how to get to her level. And I love the whole thing, like where her parents are talking about, well, um, he says you're highly intelligent and this is what we should do. And mm-hmm. it was like, so nice that like versus the yellow wallpaper where it's like, we're going to give you this rest cure. Yes. You're probably going to go crazy and start talking to the wallpaper but rest is really what women need. And it's right. like, instead of it's like, Harriet, it's like, okay, you're just too smart for everybody else. Um, we're going to have you channel your such and such into this. Like, yeah, I, I, I wish that we would normalize therapy for children because I oh, know yeah. I, I started therapy after my dad died. I went through a couple of therapists before I had like a long-term therapist. and I had the same therapist for like 12 years and she was great. She was phenomenal. And it was so nice to have just like a person who could either validate my feelings or tell me that I was crazy. And also too, and again, like as a kid to have like a liaison between my feelings and my guardians, because that was always like the big friction point when I was young was this is what I'm feeling. And this is what my guardian wants me to feel. Mm -hmm. And there's a bridge here that neither of us can see the other end of because our perspectives are so different. So I'm coming at this from like a little angry hobgoblin who had just lost a parent. And my aunt is like, please stop being sad and see Jesus, Um, (laughs) which wasn't happening. But like therapy, I mean, same. I was also resistant to it as a kid because I felt too smart for it. Um, But it was great to have someone who could almost like interpret it was like having an interpreter of like, here's what I'm feeling. Now I need you to say it in a way that will make my guardians listen to me. Mm-hmm. I think like that was the best part about having a therapist, like especially being like an intelligent, precocious child was having like, cause I don't know what it is about most adults. That's very stereotypical, but true. Is that like, I feel like they just don't listen to children. Like they forgot that they were once children and that they should be listened to. Um, but like adults just don't listen to kids. So it was nice to have like, hey, here's an adult telling you what your child is saying. So you should listen because this adult just said the thing that your kid has been saying for like a year and a half. Yeah, it's like, it's nice to have somebody who's there who doesn't approach you with condescension. Yeah. Or in all honesty, working in reverse as well. So like a lot of the sessions with my long-term therapist was between me and my aunt who raised me. And a lot of it also was translating my aunt to me which is hey this may be why she said what she said it may have been rude it may have been disrespectful to you it may have hurt your feelings but this is why it's being said rather than you just being an angry shit lord and writing fan fiction which is what i did when i was angry um but i do like that you know they go out of their way to have harriet be in therapy because i feel like for the 60s that would have probably been pretty revolutionary Mm -hmm. Again, for the 90s, getting there, I feel like, I feel like by the 90s, we were starting to understand if you were of a certain privilege, you could do that. So, like, I got the privilege of therapy in the early 2000s after my father passed away. But I am acknowledging that therapy is a privilege. I'm, even now as I'm doing telemedicine, I am acknowledging that therapy is a privilege, which it shouldn't be. Should Hashtag. be available to everybody. Yeah. It should be available to everyone who seeks it. Um, 
but yeah that's a uh, that was powerful especially now because like i am going through another therapy journey which i love and hate often <laughs> so my my therapist in the app sent me an assignment and uh let me tell you the name of the assignment because i was very upset so he'll upload a doc into the app and just on title alone i was like ready to square up with my therapist and the document's title was dysfunctional assumption scale <laughs> and it's like hi you want to fight old man like don't <laughs> so I mean, it was, I'm glad that Harriet got to see a therapist. Uh, this is where we say we're not therapists. Right. We are but, not licensed, nor do we have the ability to tell you what to do with your life. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is where Amanda turns into PR mode and says, we are not therapists. We don't and, even play them on TV. Nope. Uh, but we do hope that if you are due to current events or non-current events, um, in a place that you feel is less ideal. I do sincerely hope that you reach out for help. I know that in Texas and California, and I think a couple other places now, there are also now mental health hotlines for- There for are. Pain. There are. So I will have to see if I can find the one for Texas to share with y'all. Yeah. I'm so, taking uh, notes this week, so I'm not like listening back to the episode and being like, I forgot to put that in. <laughs> wherever that badge we got the angry frog from last episode which was great i'm glad you liked it loved it so much the, the angry frog was fantastic um i think that's all the themes we didn't really have symbols unless you want to talk about tomatoes which are secretly poisonous just like female spies there we go <laughs> so there are some notes on the text and louise fits you louise perkins fits you was born october 5th 1928 in memphis mm -hmm. um her parents were loaded but her parents divorced when she was an infant. So her dad, he has like the best name, Mil Millsaps Fitzhugh. You almost said Millhouse. I did almost say Millhouse. We've been watching a lot of this. I'm sorry. Um, he got full custody of her, which is very strange for that time period as well. Mm -hmm. um, she was mostly raised by her father and stepmother, and she didn't see her real mother. Real. Let me back that up as somebody who, who goes through this. Um, her biological mom was rumored to be a dancer and suffer from mental illness. Why is that related? I I don't know. I think it's not related. I think it was just the, this was what she was told. Um, is it like jazz madness? Jazz madness. You got to do the hand shake when you do that. No, I um, don't. You're like, no, I, I have too much style for that. Um, yeah. So she attended Miss Hutchinson School, which is a huge basis for Harriet School and Harriet the Spy. Mm -hmm. um, she was married once when she was very young and it was very brief and a lot of people believe it was to cover up a rumor about her and another female student mm -hmm. um she lived in washington dc france and italy as a kid and young adult mm -hmm. um, she was a very accomplished painter and her work was displayed in a gallery in italy and she was praised for her real her real like how real it was realism realism, realism. ah i can say words for her realty which is selling houses selling houses and her home. No, I'm just kidding. Her land. Um, when she went to, she went to Bard College and she ended up getting into politics and big things about fighting racism. Woo. Um, which is, is interesting because she bounced around from college to college, but that part never left her, was the fighting for what she thought was right. Praise God. Um, as an adult, she split her time between New York City, uh, primarily her home in Long Island, and then Bridgewater, Connecticut, where she had another home as well. 
Harriet. I love Connecticut. I've never been there. I have family up there. So Harriet the Spy came out in 1964. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a lot of concern when it first came out that none of the characters are considered to be perfectly noble. Um, But it ended up getting the New York Times Outstanding Book Award in 1964. And to date, it's sold over 4 million copies. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's still selling. It's still a book that you can grab super easy and it's still something you read in school. Yep. Um, this is one of the first times where unique, intelligent, non-conforming girls were represented in literature positively and not as somebody who died at the end. Yeah, um, I, I think we need to pause there a little bit because when we say positively, like there were quirky girls in literature always, but they're usually like bad or devious or stupid like, they're not portrayed positively. Like, you can find good still in Harriet, even if you have a more traditionally positive life or something like that. And if you are more like her, then you're more likely to be like, yeah, we're in the same club. Um, so I do think it's important to mention that it's portrayed as positive, that she's quirky and good, which you see the apotheosis of that in, like, in the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, where we're going to take quirky and make it a subgenre of human but <laughs> tori tori is like yes yes mm-hmm. um as mentioned previously in the podcast louise fitzhugh was a lesbian she was a quiet lesbian mm-hmm. um her lover Alexi gordon claimed that louise had written a book called amelia in the 60s it was about two women falling in love but it was never published because mm-hmm. of the time period of course and um as, as mentioned before, too, many people knew the, quote, secret about Louise, but they kept it quiet because they didn't want her to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, she ended up passing away in 1974 from a brain aneurysm. She was only 46. God damn it. Yeah, I know. I was like, come on. Um, she has two other additional books in the Harriet the Spy series. And then there is what her first book. I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um it's like Susie something, but it's basically was a response to Eloise at the Plaza. It was like, this is a little girl who was raised by beatniks instead. Um, That's amazing. I know. I'm like, I got to find it. I got to read it. That's fantastic. So did we have to read this in school? No, not in school, but I did watch the movie that came out in the 90s. Uh, and I loved the movie as a kid, but I never had to read the book. I do feel like if I read the book, I might like the movie less. But because I saw the movie first, I don't dislike the book, but it just feels weird. I didn't have to read this in school, but I absolutely loved reading this book for the first time. I had it on audio while I was doing a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, this girl is great. I'm actually going to get a copy of it for my daughter. So That sounds great. Yeah, that sounds Dig it. I, yeah, I think it's a good, like, coming of age. I think it's a good positive coming of age story. Um... We also, I think we forgot to mention um, espionage and spying as a theme because we were too busy talking about like gender roles and feminism, which I feel like is peak unfortunately required reading where we're going to ignore the obvious thing in the title so we can push our own agenda. I mean, fair. Let's talk about racism and feminism and let's not talk about the obvious theme of espionage. So Harriet uses it as a means of control. Uh, and as an anxious person, I can relate to this 
because I would also spy on people as a means to get information uh, if it meant quelling the negative thoughts in my brain. <laughs> so I, on a whole, spying and spycraft is uh, not very recent. Like there were stories of spies in antiquity. They weren't good. It's like, oh, there's just a random guy from another camp. Hopefully he doesn't get murdered. <laughs> Am I wrong? It was, I mean, I, I feel like spy stories kicked up a lot more in like the 30s and 40s with World yeah, War II when, and anxiety. Yeah. yeah, we got like actual spy stories in the 30s and 40s. Uh, we would be lying and bad if we didn't talk about James Bond, which I think is boring and a male power fantasy that is frankly exhausting. He was really into BDSM. It's a whole story. Not James, or not um, James Bond, necessarily. <laughs> I, say, I don't remember James that Fleming. one. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. So. I was going to say, like, I don't remember that one, but all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He's um, interesting. He, he is. Um, but again, that was usually like a male-dominated thing, or if we had female spies, they were just using their bodies and their sexuality to get information. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, spying and spycraft. You turn it on its head by having it be a little girl who's actually really, really good at it, and then having to realize that, like, secretly it's bad, because there's usually not a lot of honor in being a spy. And um, also, you make it interesting by, like, really minimizing the stakes because typically the stakes for a spy are quite high and not to diminish Harriet's pain of like having her nasty words be outed. But like, I mean, I'm pretty sure Bond almost had like his genitalia cut off by a laser beam multiple times. Not lying. Not wrong. Uh, but like her biggest thing is like, Oh no, someone found out that I'm a secret shit Lord. So now I'm a public shit Lord. I've been outed as a shit Lord, which I mean, that I guess Twitter feed was released to the public. You can avoid all of that by either not saying racist things on the internet or regularly purging your feed. But we would go with option one. Yeah, I, I mean, like option one is very preferred. But if you're like most people at this stage on the internet, where you likely have said something that has not aged well because sensitivities change, you can mitigate a lot of this by deleting most of your feed. Because, I mean, I'll be real. If I had to go back and look at my Twitter in 2010, even I, as woke as I am, have probably said something that will probably be offensive to someone. <laughs> Who and what, I don't know. But probably somewhere. Did we have any listener questions this week? None. Which, Aww. I mean... That's fine. It, you know what? It's been a rough week. You guys it's get a pass. A rough week. Yeah. Um, so we used a lot of resources. Mostly um, the movie. Yeah. Movie was a big one. Mm -hmm. uh, Wikipedia for some jumping off points. Yeah. NPR, New York Times. Mm -hmm. There's, what is it? Hbook.com, which was really cool. Um, I'll link that too. And then there was also, there's a book coming out December 1st. I'm super bummed it's not out already. It's called Sometimes you have to lie, and it's about Louise Fitzhugh's life. That sounds fun. I know I'm excited about it. Like I already put it on my like wish list. So, um, our next book is we're reading Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin uh, because, as much as we're all aware of the time is a myth, apparently pride is upon us. 
while we will be celebrating in indoors, we will still be celebrating. I mean, realistically, every day is pride if you're gay enough. Um, <laughs> so. So I got an emergency work call, so I have to go handle it, which is why you keep seeing me look down at my phone. It's perfectly uh, fine. Uh, everyone, so, go read a book. You know where our social media is. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. I love you guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>